Welcome to the Calvary Chapel South Bay Sermon Podcast. We are a large, multi-ethnic, multi-generational church in Los Angeles, California, and we'd love to have you visit us for a service if you're in the L.A. area. Visit ccsouthbay.org to learn more about us and to find out service times. If you have any questions, shoot us an email at hello at ccsouthbay.org. Enjoy today's sermon, and we hope to see you at church soon. Solomon is looking at the end of his life, looking back at his life, and he's come to a conclusion. The only thing that matters is to fear the Lord. And he is making a comparison in Songs of Ecclesiastes chapter 4 between someone who is alone and someone who has companions. Let's take a look. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 8. There is one alone without companion. He's neither son nor brother, yet there is no end to all his labors, nor is his eye satisfied with riches. But he never asks, for whom do I toil and deprive myself of good? This also is vanity and a grave misfortune. He's talking about the guy who decides to live their life alone like a hermit. Now remember, the Lord said it's good for man not to be alone. But this guy has decided, I'm going to rebel against what the Lord has said, and I'm going to choose to be alone. Now, this is an active choice to be alone. This is not someone that's just waiting for someone to come along in their life. This is someone that's made the decision, I'm not going to be involved with anyone or any community. And the Bible says this guy's got no family. This guy's got no one to help him in time of need. And he's become very greedy. And he's not even sensible enough to realize that everything that he's amassed and everything he's worked so hard for, he's going to die and it's left to no one and to nothing. So Solomon looks at his life and goes, this is worthless. Like, I mean, can't you see that this kind of life means nothing? Now, what he does now is compare it with the life that has a companion. Now, take a look. I read this at a lot of weddings. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 9. Oh, by the way, we have our first wedding out of Song of Solomon. Um, Arlen and Adrian got married on Friday. And it was such a gift. One of the most beautiful weddings I'd ever seen. They turned and faced the audience and gave their testimony of how they each came to Christ and how Christ had changed their lives. And it was just powerhouse. I mean, you could have heard a pin drop. So praise the Lord for that precious couple. Now let's take a look at Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 9. Two are better than one. They've got a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, one will lift up his companion, but woe to him who was alone when he falls. He's got no one to help him up. Again, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? Though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. In other words, if two is good, three is even better. And what he's talking about is companionship versus being alone. And he says, if you got a companion, you're going to make more profit. You can work twice as hard, get twice as much done, and make twice the profit. He says very clearly, if you got a companion, you got someone to help you in life. You're not alone. And if you fall in your time of need, you've got someone to help you get up. He says, listen, if you've got a companion, you've got someone that can comfort you you 
when you have a need. So you're there lying in bed and you're cold and you can't get warm alone. So he says it's good to have someone that can comfort you. And he says if someone attacks you, if you've got someone with you, then you're strong. So what we want to do is take a look at this and we're going to pull out four marital principles and we're going to conclude with the threefold cord strand. And so if you're taking note, maybe you'll write the first one down. We're going to talk about profit, a good profit. Now we're going to, you might want to do this with your hands because we're going to be flipping through a lot of pages in the Bible as we understand each of these principles of marriage. So the first one is this. The prophet, a good prophet. The business of marriage is to make us holy. The business of marriage is to make us holy. We get to work together in order to become holy. Now, if you got your Bible, flip over with me to 1 Peter. 1 Peter, leave Ecclesiastes, go over to the New Testament, 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, we'll pick it up there in verse 15. 1 Peter chapter 1, we'll pick it up in verse 15. But... As he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct because it's written, be holy for I am holy. Holiness is the attribute of God. And we discussed uh, a couple of weeks ago that when we become like him, it helps us become one. We're matured. We are understanding more of who he is. We have the mind of Christ. And when we become more like him, it actually helps in the process of becoming one. And for a marriage, becoming one is holy because it's what God has ordained. Anything that God has ordained for us in our life is holiness to the Lord. Usually it's the exact opposite of the way of the world. For example, being kind is holy. Being loving is holy. Having an inexpressible joy is being holy. Choosing to pursue righteousness is holy. And we're going to dig into a little bit more of holiness in just a moment. But we see in Scripture there is a command for us to be holy. What marriage does is allow someone else into our life to help us understand those moments when we're not so holy. Amen? Amen? Amen. It's so easy to come to church and lift up your hands and smile and give glory to God and just say, Jesus, you're so wonderful. And everyone looks at you and goes, wow, they're so holy. And then you go home with your spouse. And your spouse, well, they see some unholy moments. They see the moments when you're not lifting your hands, when you're not giving glory to God. And it's at that moment we can recognize that two are better than one because there might be some areas in your life that you are, excuse me, that you have blind spots. Now you know what a blind spot is? A blind spot is very audible. 
Because when you're on the 405 and you're about to go into a lane, And as you're going in and there's about to be a major collision, the car that you can't see goes honk. And what do you do? Swerve back into your lane. And you're so thankful that that car honked their horn. Why aren't we just as thankful that when we're about to go into a place of unholiness and our spouse goes honk. Why aren't we just as thankful? Why, you know, when the car drives by, we're like, oh, thank you. And we're like this. But when our wife or our husband drives by and they've given little honk, we're mad. We can't believe honk, honk. And what do we do? We honk back. But we have been put together to help each other fulfill scripture and honk in each other's life. Amen. (laughs) only like two of you said amen because we don't like the honk but the truth of scripture is that we're to become holy now listen to what paul says you stay in first peter you stay in first peter if you're taking note maybe you'll write down second corinthians chapter seven verse one listen listen what paul says therefore having these promises so all the promises that God has given, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of the Lord. God has given us our spouses to produce a prophet. And the prophet is that we get to help each other become holy. So go ahead, look at your significant other and just go, Honk. (laughs) No, don't do it spitefully. Don't do it spitefully. The goal of marriage, the business of marriage, is to make us holy. Now, you're in 1 Peter. And what I would like to see us for us to see is some of the phases of holiness. Go with me over to 2 Peter, just a couple of pages. 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. Let's take a look, starting in verse 1. Simon Peter, 2 Peter 1, a bondservant and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, you know why I think Peter became so wise? He had a wife. And his wife was the one, I believe, that was the faithful. And let me tell you why. She got crucified first as Peter watched. Peter's wife was crucified first. And the Romans made him watch her be crucified. And so when we read these books, we're not just reading the wisdom of Peter. We are reading the wisdom of a husband and wife team like a Priscilla and Aquila. And so Peter says, Peter, a bondservant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. The word of God has everything we need in order for our lives to give God uh, glory and in order for us to become godly. God has not missed 
anything in the Bible. In other words, if you don't think it's in the Bible, that's your problem, not God's problem. He's given us everything that pertains to life. The answers for our questions are found in the word of God, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature. He's repeating what the what Paul said. Since you've got all of these promises, cleanse yourselves of the flesh and purpose to become holy. You're partakers of the divine nature. And the nature that he's speaking about is the command of God that we are to be holy just as he is holy, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Now he gives us a way to holiness. Couples, take a look. But also for this very reason, giving all diligence. Do you remember the widow? She walked up into the temple and she gave the widow's might. And of all of the people that Jesus commended, he commended this one woman because she gave everything she had. She gave everything she had. This is the approach of faith that we give holiness everything that we've got. He says, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue. And what we begin to see now is a stair-step process for our holiness. So add to our faith virtue. Virtue is moral excellence. In other words, as I'm reading the scripture, I am making a goal in my heart and mind to become what God has called me to be. That is a virtuous mindset. But he says, you're not finished. To virtue, add knowledge. Knowledge is the opportunity for me to recognize that I have a lifetime to learn to become holy. So I'm going to dig into the word each and every day so that I can apply something from the word in my life every day to knowledge, self-control. Holiness is connected to self-control. Because we are spirit-controlled, and the fruit of the spirit is self-control. So when I want to fly off the handle, when my wife or my husband gives me a little honk, then what I purpose to do is to be filled with the spirit and have self-control. To self-control, perseverance. To perseverance, godliness. To godliness, brotherly kindness. And to brotherly kindness, love. Look at verse 8. For if these are yours and abound, you will neither be, be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. What Peter is doing is giving us the fruit of holiness in our life. If we are becoming holier and holier and holier, we won't be becoming self-righteous. We won't be becoming mean and angry. If holiness is taking root in our life, we are going to be loving people. I got the most incredible email this week. A gentleman texted me and he said, he emailed me and he said, Pastor Chet, I'm really struggling with, and he called out a certain, uh, a somewhat uh, people that were doing something in the sanctuary. 
And he's an older gentleman. He's probably close to 75, 75 years old. Um, and he says to me, um, he emails me this long email. He says, I'm really struggling with this. And I think you need to address from this from the pulpit. And this is the way these people are dressing. And we just need to address this. And I responded. And I said to him, dear, oh, I'm not going to say his name. Dear, and I said, listen, some of these that you're speaking about is just coming to the Lord. And so they don't understand what you have grown up in in the Lord for the last 40 to 50 years. And it's our opportunity to love them and to lead them in the way of righteousness. So I prayed and I sent the email. And he responded, I'm so embarrassed of myself. I have realized I'm not a grace-filled person. And I just want to let you know how thankful I am that you have shown me the love of Christ. And I listened to this man whom I fully respect. And that's why I prayed before the email and I responded to him and I said, you are truly a holy man. Not because you wanted me to address something from the pulpit, but because you realized what holiness really actually is. It's to love God and to love others. Well, loving others means that I'm going to be accepting of the position that they're in and I'm going to purpose to raise them up, to edify them, to get them to the place that represents the holiness of God. That's what happens in our marriage. We are not perfect. We are being perfected. And if we make the business of our marriage to become holy, then we will recognize where we're at, choose to honk a little bit on each side so that we can become holy. And holiness will look like a loving marriage. Holiness will look like a love for one another and a love for others. So if you wonder what your holy factor is, just take a look at your love factor and you'll know where your holiness is. Because the fruit of developing holiness in your life is loving kindness. That's the fruit of holiness. Now, secondly, we go back to Ecclesiastes. You don't need to turn there. He talked about how a companion, two people, they're able to help each other if one falls. So maybe you'll write down this statement. The journey of marriage is to help each other get to the place God wants us to be. The journey of marriage is to help each other get there. Can I give you a promise that you can name and claim? And I'm not a name and claim person. But let me give you a promise that you can name and claim for your marriage. Your spouse will fall. Your spouse will make a mistake. Your spouse will do something that hurts you. Can I get a witness? Amen? From everyone? Who has a marriage in here where your spouse has never hurt you? (laughs) The truth of the matter is we're not perfect. We are going to stumble along the journey of the destination to holiness. And the journey of marriage is not to step on each other when the other stumbles or fall. It's actually to help each other get there. 
Now, if you would, would you go to 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy, go back a few pages, 2 Timothy chapter 3, 2 Timothy chapter 3, and I'm going to pick it up there in verse 16. Now, while you're turning there, I want to give you an illustration of what I'm talking about. You go to 2 Timothy, maybe you write in your notes, Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6, verse 1 and 2. Listen to what Paul says about when people stumble or fall. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, listen guys, you are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness, considering yourself lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Now I want to give you a visual. Ray, come here. Come on. Don't be afraid. I love this guy. You guys give it up for Ray and Tori. They're so wonderful. I'm, do, I'm doing their premarital, all right? And I just have loved getting to know them. Now, I want to give you an illustration. You're on life's journey, and your spouse has stumbled. Their toe is hurting now. So what Paul says, when someone stumbles or falls, we're to help them. And the way that we help them is to bear their burden. Jump on my back. This is what that word means. And I want you guys to get a visual. So I'm going to walk right down the aisle. I want everyone to see what this word... Are you a little uncomfortable? No, I'm, I'm good. Oh, great. You want to stay here the whole Bible study? Sure. Perfect. <laughs> I could probably hold you the whole... I was going to pick up Brandon, but then I looked at you and I said, I'm going to pick up you instead of Brandon. <laughs> so I want you to see this. Now let me tell you what this is. Ray gets heavy after a while. And if I was to hold him as I bear his burden, it's the picture of what we need to do in our marriage. When our spouse stumbles or falls, we don't scream and yell at them and tell them how imperfect they are. We are imperfect. What the Bible encourages us to do is to bear the burden that we actually pick them up because they've hurt themselves and we carry them for the rest of the journey until they heal. This is bear the burden. Amen? Amen. All right. Give it up for Ray. Good job. Now, there's a way for us to do this. And 2 Timothy chapter 3 gives us a way to help bear the burden in marriage. All right? Let's take a look at it, and we're going to dissect this just a little bit, okay? So we're on the journey, and we've said the journey of marriage is to help each other get there. So I've asked you to turn to 2 Timothy. Take a look at chapter 3, verse 16. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. So the Bible is God's Word, and it's profitable for doctrine. This word means it's good to teach. So having devotions together as a couple on the journey is a way to help each other. Discussing the word of God is a way to help each other. Asking your spouse, hey, I was reading, seek first the kingdom of God and all his righteousness. What do you think it means? Don't respond and go, Duh, it means seek first the kingdom of God. 
No, no, no. Have a conversation about what seeking first would look like in your marriage. You see, wherever you are in your devotional life, it's an opportunity to bring that into your marriage life and have a conversation and teach each other spiritual things. All scripture is profitable for teaching. It's profitable for reproof. Now, let me give you an understanding of this word. This is the word conviction. It's a legal term. And what this means is once you know the truth, like be kind one to another, when you go into a court of law, if you've not been kind, you then communicate the truth and say, listen, the word of God says be kind. You were not kind, so you are convicted. You are guilty of the crime of not being kind. Now, some of you are going, oh, I like that court of law <laughs> to attorneys. That sounds great. It sounds like a good old cat fight. No, no, no. That's not what we're trying to accomplish here because you've got to see the next word. And for this word, I'm going to ask Brandon if you'll come up to the stage uh, and so I can use now you as an illustration. The next word is the word correction. And I need you to see this because a lot of couples miss the point of bearing the burden and correction. No, no, no come on. I, I want us to be on full display. So just come on up here. Okay, great. You guys, give it up for Brandon. Don't be afraid. Not afraid. You might be. Okay, go ahead, turn around. Lift up your arms. Okay. Now, all I want you to do is fall back. Wait, wait give me a second. I, I don't want to. Okay. All right, ready? It's on camera. Yeah, ready? Now, all I want you to do is just fall back. Yeah, fall back. Okay. No, uh, uh, no, uh, uh, uh. Brandon trusts me. And because he trusts me, he didn't put his foot back when he was falling. And he just fell. What a beautiful display of a marriage. That we're willing to be weak in front of our spouse. But sometimes in that weakness, we might make a mistake. This word correction is this. Before they fall, I catch them and correct their position before the Lord. Amen? Thanks. You see, oftentimes, we'll just let our spouse fall. We'll just let them fall flat on the ground. But the heart of God is that we catch them and we correct their position. We're actually bearing the weight of their mistake. And then we purpose to correct their position. We take them to the Lord to seek forgiveness, to confess sin. But then there's the final word here. Now remember, the journey of marriage is to help each other get there. The next word here is for instruction in righteousness that the man or the person of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Did you see that? Instruction to righteousness. Once we realize we've got a marital problem, once we realize we've got a marital weakness, now we recognize where we need to work. My wife ran a 5K yesterday with Noella. 
And Noella was telling me, I know, right? She did great. So I text the whole family and I'm like, we have like 25 people on our family, you know, and that's just my children and their wives. So it's like, I said to him, I said, hey, mom is right, running a 5K and you should have heard the kids like just going off on how proud they were of mom. And so they send this picture and Noella, she's like, just, she just clipped a little selfie and Noella's doing her little thing. And Andrea's like, no, you do this. No, she wasn't. Let me tell you why. Andrea knew she was going to run this 5K. So for the last several months, she's been killing it on the treadmill. And so she has been training because she knew that she was weak in running. So she put training into practice so that she could be prepared for the race. When we recognize we've got a weakness in our marriage, we need to start training so that we get strong. So if prayer is a weakness, you start praying together. If being kind one to another is a weakness, you recognize it and you purpose in moments where you usually aren't kind to be kind. You've got to train. But it's not just kindness in your marriage. You might recognize you're just an unkind person. You're unkind at work. You're unkind with your kids. And you start putting kindness into every aspect of your life. It's a training process to become holy. Amen? The next word that we want to talk about is the word comfort. If two lie down together, how can they keep unless they, uh, they will be able to stay warm together? Now, this is a statement that maybe you'll write this down. It's our third statement. The desire of marriage is to meet each other's needs by leading each other to the only one who can meet our need. The desire of marriage is to meet each other's needs By leading each other to the only one who can meet our needs. Your spouse is not capable over the course of their lifetime to meet your every need. They're just not capable. And if you walk into marriage thinking that bliss is going to be found in the human being that you are going to marry, then you're mistaken. But the desire of marriage should be to lead each other to the only one who can meet your every need. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 3, and we're going to see the process here. Ephesians chapter 3 of how we can lead each other to the only one that can meet our need. Ephesians chapter 3, look at verse 14. Ephesians chapter 3, look at verse 14. For this reason... I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. In other words, when we got saved, our last name became God's child. And Paul is saying, I'm praying for all the Christians in verse 14 and 15. Now take a look what his prayer request is. That he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his, through his, his spirit in the inner man. He alone can meet all of your needs. That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what's the width and the length and the depth and the height to know, to be in relationship, to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you may be filled, that every need might be met with all of the fullness of God. 
Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly all that we ask or think. He can meet every need according to the power that works in us. To him be the glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations. Forever and ever let the church say, Amen. Paul's praying for the body of Christ. And he's praying that the, the bride of Christ would realize that Jesus and a relationship with him He's the only one that can bring you to fullness. He's the only one that can meet all your needs. And so if we want to lead each other to the only one that can meet our needs, we need to pray for each other and pray with each other. We need to pray for each other. I want to break that down for just a minute and ask us, how often do you pray for your spouse? And what does your prayer sound like? Do your prayers sound like, Lord, help him. You know what needs to change. I can't take it anymore. And Lord, I need you to do this. And I need you to do this. And I need you. Could your prayers possibly be changed to, Lord, Thank you that he's so mean. It's helping me become loving. Lord, thank you that he is, and I'm kidding, of course. But how are you going to the Lord in prayer for your spouse? Is it with gratitude? Is it with a perspective that they are helping you become holy? How are you praying? And what are you praying for your spouse? Are you praying that your husband would dwell with you with understanding? Are you praying that your wife would call you master? <laughs> Read it for yourself. It's 1 Peter chapter 3. Still working on it with Andrea. She hasn't gotten there yet. One day she will be like Sarah and she will call me master. It's in the Bible. You read it. First, first Peter chapter three. You want to go there? The husband's like, yes, I'd love to see that. But the Bible also says that husbands should dwell with their wives with understanding. That takes. <laughs> Why didn't you say amen when the wives had to call their husband's master? Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, someone came up to me uh, uh, two weeks ago and says, who is that lady that always answers your questions in the Sunday service? And I go, that's Jocelyn. Oh, well, we need to meet her. We like her a lot. If you don't go to the 1030 service, um, you should just check in every once in a while. Now, let me, where was I? Oh. But the Bible also, excuse me, master, did you want to go ahead and do the master? <laughs> no, master. The Bible talks about the husband dwelling with their wife with understanding. So there is a twofold effort that is going to need a lot of prayer. And maybe, husbands, you pray, Lord, help me to dwell with my wife with understanding. 
Help me to love her as Christ loves the church. Pray scripture over your spouse. It's the surest prayer that will be answered. Because if you're praying that they change this and they change this, do you realize that you might be the problem? I'm going to give you an example. Her name is Martha. And she's looking at Mary. And she's passing by the living room as she's folding the napkins and putting the forks out and lighting all the candles. And there's Mary just doing kumbaya at the feet of Jesus. And she passes again and she passes again. Finally, she can't take it. So she goes to Jesus in prayer. Anytime you talk to Jesus, it's prayer. So she goes to Jesus in prayer. Look at her. Do something for Mary. Tell, doesn't she see everything that I'm doing? Martha, Martha, you're actually the problem. So whenever anyone comes up to me and says, I prayed about it, great. What did God say? Because Jesus didn't answer Martha what she expected. She went to God saying Mary was the problem. Jesus went back to her and said, actually, you're the problem. Mary has chosen the greater thing. You're busy about many things, Martha. All I came for was dinner. If we want to do hot dogs and macaroni and cheese, I'm a happy person. But you've got this huge display that you think I require. Martha, you're the problem. Praying scripture is the surest thing that you can pray for you and your spouse. Finally, Solomon talked about strength. That two, one might be overpowered, but two can have victory. And if you're taking note, number four, maybe you'll write down this statement. The wrestle of marriage should be the problem, not the person. The wrestle of marriage should be the problem, not the person. Personify the problem. Call it Sally. Call it Harry. Take the problem away from the person and label the problem. Identify the problem. And I want to give you an example. Turn with me our last area of scripture, 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6, I want to show you how it's important for us to label what the problem is and be careful not to attach the problem to the person. Attach the problem to the problem. Take the problem out of the relationship and identify it as as the issue. Don't put the problem on the person. Take the problem out and label it. Look at, look at the example of Scripture. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. He identifies the problem and he labels it. The love of money. He doesn't say the people. He says the love of money is the problem. He identifies the problem. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. For which some have strayed from their faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. He identifies the problem and that he expresses the impact of the problem on people. In your marriage, if you can choose to identify the problem, we are selfish. We have an issue with spending. We don't communicate well. 
We have a problem when it comes to money. We like material things. We have triggers. If you can come out of the person and label the problem, then you can realize the impact that the problem itself is having on you. And now you know where you begin. Now take a look at what, they, what Paul instructs to do with the problem. But you... Oh, man of God, now he's speaking to the person. He's not speaking about the problem. He is talking about a forward movement. Pursue, flee these things, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. Take a look. Fight the good fight of faith. There is a fight in marriage, but it's not with each other. Solomon made it very clear in Ecclesiastes, one will be overpowered, but two can withstand. When you choose to fight together and identify who the real enemy, what, excuse me, what the real enemy is. Do you remember I Love Lucy? We talked about this, remember? Remember I Love, who remembers I Love Lucy? Okay, great. Yeah, all of our 20-somethings, no. Don't raise their hand. You guys really don't know. I love, do you know I love Lucy? Oh, perfect. I'm going to look at you guys. I'm not looking at you, Nick. All right. So here's the deal. Lucy and Ricky were about to get a divorce on an episode. Now, I know they actually did get divorced, but they're, on an episode, they're about to get a divorce. So they go to a psychiatrist, psychologist. I'm not sure what they went to. So they go to a psychologist. They're sitting in the office and the 30-minute sitcom show, and you're watching this whole thing. So Lucy, excuse me, psychologist says to Lucy, you have ugly red hair. This is when you could say anything on TV. Okay, so there was no like politically correct anything. So Ricky was like, did you say my wife had ugly red hair? And the psychologist looked at Ricky and says, and by the way, get rid of that accent. <laughs> That's the most ridiculous accent in the world. And Lucy was like, excuse me, did you just say that to my husband? And then he cracked on Lucy, then he cracked on Ricky, then he cracked on Lucy, and all of a sudden, Lucy and Ricky came together. They started fighting the psychologist. Psychologist at the end of the show says to Ricky and to Lucy, you didn't need a divorce, you just needed a common enemy so you could fight together. The problem is, we attach the problem to the person and we fight the person. But the fight of marriage is the fight of faith. So if we identify the problem and remove it from the person, then we have a common enemy and it will actually draw us together. And we can fight the fight of faith. And that's what Paul's encouraging Timothy. The issue is the love of money. The impact it's having on people is causing them a lot of sorrow. So here's what you need to do to train in righteousness. Pursue righteousness. This is the fight of faith to purpose to become holy. So Solomon wraps us up here. And he says, a threefold cord strand cannot be broken. Now, what Solomon is saying here is, if two are good, three are better. Did you hear that? He's using the example of a marriage. He's talking about companionship. And in the spirit, he says, if two are good, three 
It's even better. Um, I, um, I love to be on the water, and I love sailing, and I love boats, and I grew up on an island, so I, I had to deal with lines all the time. And what we would do when a hurricane comes to the Bahamas is we take all the lines that we have, we bring the boats into the canals, and we take a three-fold cord strand, not a two-fold, a three-fold, and we tie those lines to the boat in the center of the canal with a special knot because we know a three-fold cord strand cannot be easily broken. And even when that hurricane comes and that boat is going like this, those lines will not snap. The boat may take on water, but it won't be because the line has snapped. And what Solomon is saying in the spirit is this. Hurricanes are going to come. There are going to be issues in marriage. But if you choose to make a covenant with Jesus Christ and allow him to be the center strand that holds your marriage together. When you stand on that rock, though the wind and the storms may come, your house will stand. So as a couple, whether you're married or not, or if you're prepping for marriage, we need to make a commitment that we're going to stand on the rock of Jesus. Now, I know that's a spiritual term, and we're going to close here in just a minute. I know that's a spiritual term, but what does it mean? That means that whatever Jesus said, I'm going to make a lifetime effort of applying it to my marital life. So if he has said, pursue righteousness, pursue purity, pursue love, I'm going to give it everything I've got by the power of the Spirit in my marriage. And if you choose to put off the old man and put on the new, when the storms come, your house will stand. Amen. Thanks for listening, and we hope you were encouraged by today's message. If you have any questions or just want to check us out, make sure to visit us at ccsouthbay.org. God bless you guys, and we'll see you next week.